This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at Ravinia.org. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at WBEZ.org slash events. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. Coming up in just a bit, I sit down with Chicago historian Mickey Kendall. Her new book, Amazons, Abolitionists, and Activists, explores thousands of years of women's history in a graphic novel form. We learn sometimes from what we see. We learn from being able to immerse ourselves and imagine ourselves in that world. So I wanted it to be something where people felt like they were on a great ride. But first, the Chicago teacher strike lasted 11 days. Now, as part of the deal to end the strike, Mayor Lori Lightfoot and the union agreed to make up five of the 11 law school days, leaving CPS to figure out how to do that without cutting too far into summer break. Now, Chicago Public Schools has come up with a plan to make up the days, but it's not going over well with everyone. WBEZ's Sarah Karp has been covering the story and lays out the plan to make up those five days. So the days that they are proposing are Wednesday, November 27th, Thursday, January 2nd, Friday, January 3rd, Wednesday, June 17th, and Thursday, June 18th. So basically, you're going to have a shorter Thanksgiving break, a shorter winter break, and then you're going to have your summer break um, delayed by two days. Okay, so Thanksgiving break uh, gets shortened by a day, winter break by two days, and then two days added to the school year. How is this going over with teachers? You know, you've heard a bunch of different reactions. I mean, teachers are really upset that they're not being able to make up all 11 days. Some of them have said that they, you know, they've proposed different ideas, you know, and there's there's always a day here or a day there. They're really glad that it's not all at the end of the year because that would, you know, move way into summer break, which they value. But there are some other, you know, thoughts about ways that you could have done it I don't think that that the teachers are as mad about the actual days as they are just that they're not being able to make up all 11. What were some of the other suggestions on the table for making up these days? Well, one thing is that you do have a lot of professional development days and you also have a lot of um, two report card pickup days. And you could have made those student attendance days. You know, then have maybe the teachers have more professional development days at the end of the school year. For example, this Friday is a school improvement day, which seems kind of crazy because you've just been out of school for two and a half weeks. And now here you are, you get another day off. And then next week, depending if you're in high school or elementary school, you, you have either Wednesday or Thursday off for report card pickup day. And that also seems a little crazy like we just well, got back into the swing of things thanksgiving break is right around the and corner and then thanksgiving too. breaks it's just, so in november it's always been the case that chicago public schools has a lot of off days and i think some people are like well we could have sacrificed some of those because they're kind of just interrupting as we're just trying to get back into the flow of things what about parents sarah how are they reacting to the makeup plan you know, it varies. Some parents are definitely saying, you know, hey, the one year that I planned a vacation at the, on winter break, now we, you know, we are in trouble. We have to either come back early or have our kids miss the days. 
Um, some people, you know, Thanksgiving's only two weeks away, and now a lot of people are like, oh, we're going to leave town on Wednesday so we could be there on Thursday, but now school is on Wednesday, so you have to make a choice about what you're going to do, if you're just going to let your child miss school or if you're going to delay leaving town. So there are complications like that. So you do hear parents saying that. One thing that I, I have heard a lot of parents say is that they're glad that it, summer break is not extended that much because – a lot of those things that, that people do plan in the summer, you know, once they're supposed to start, they're supposed to start. And so you have camp that you've already signed your child up for that your child's really interested in. And you don't want them missing that because school is going on and on and on. So. so just remind us again why CPS is only making up five of the days and not this whole 11 that teachers want it. Just about a week ago, the teachers union voted to approve a tentative agreement, but they did not approve a back-to-work order because Mayor Lori Lightfoot was like, they're not going to make up any of the days, any of the 11 days. Um, This is what she had been threatening since before the strike, and she was dead set on it. So then um, they spent the day in which there was high drama where, you know, um, CTU President Jesse Sharkey went and had a meeting with her, and they negotiated for five days, which was a compromise, but... You know, teachers are real, really still very mad that they're not making up all 11 days. That's traditionally been the case that you would make up all 11 days. So, yeah, it was a big controversy. And I think it, it, it's going to remain a really tough spot for Lightfoot in, in the hearts of a lot of teachers. So will these makeup days have any impact on the school budget? Well, that's the other thing. So in the press release that uh, Chicago Public Schools put out yesterday talking about the makeup days, they noted that they will save $68 million by not making up six of the days. And while they've made a lot of promises in this contract, including, you know, class size reduction and also adding staff and salary increases. They said that that, this money will be used to help pay for those things. Now, of course, this is just a one-time thing. You're not going to, you know, get out of paying next year. So it it will help this year's budget to be balanced. All right. That's WBEZ education reporter, Sarah Karp. Sarah, thanks. Thank you. Well-behaved women seldom make history, or so the saying goes. And that's just one lesson you might take away from a new book by Chicago author Mickey Kendall. In Amazons, abolitionists, and activists, writer Mickey Kendall traces women's fight for their rights throughout history. And there's a lot of history to get through. From the status of Sumerian women in 3000 BCE, through the Roman Empire, to warrior queens in the 14th century, to activists organizing in the modern era, the book is a graphic novel-style primer on millennia of women's history, covering key figures from around the world, including queens, freedom fighters, reformers, and even spies. Amazon's abolitionists and activists is out on bookshelves, and writer Mickey Kendall joins me now in studio. Welcome to Reset. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So there are lots of books about feminist figures out there, but what did you see missing that you wanted to write a book around? I wanted the context. We have the same sort of debates, the same arguments, and we all tend to know maybe a little bit of history, right? We know maybe the history of women's rights in America or maybe the history of women's rights in Great Britain or things like that. But we've never actually said what happened, when did it happen, how was it happening in different places at the same time. I wanted to situate it so that we saw what was happening not just in America in 1922 or whatever, what was happening elsewhere. 
and also what things were women doing in various movements that advanced the cause of women's rights, right? You can't talk about women's rights and not talk about labor rights or disability rights or trans rights. You can't talk about these things in a vacuum or in narrow slices and have a real conversation about the impact of all of this activism. Well, and the framing of the book is interesting because it's sort of futuristic. You create this AI, sort of an artificial intelligence, who drops into this conversation a group of young women from various backgrounds and ethnicities they're having. And she's like, wait a second, <laughs> let, me, let me help you out here because you all are doing it wrong. Why did you want to create that framework for the story? So first confession, uh-huh. I am a sci-fi junkie. Welcome oh, to the club. Yay. Yes. All day. <laughs> um, and second confession, I didn't like history in school. I didn't like history when I was in, in grammar school because it felt like we learned the same thing over and over every year. And it was kind of boring, right? I know that the Battle of Hastings happened in 1066. Ask me if I know what the Battle of Hastings was about or why I know that information. I don't. I have no idea. So I wanted to write the book that I wanted to read. I wanted it to be fun and engaging. And I personally think people take their fiction more seriously than their facts sometimes. So if you give them the facts and wrap it up in a nice candy-coated fiction shell and you make it accessible to people who are maybe not good readers, who are maybe not really into reading. We have a lot of kids who just will tell you they don't like reading, right? What they don't like is that it's a wall of text and this is not how they learn. And we learn sometimes from what we see. We learn from being able to immerse ourselves and imagine ourselves in that world. So I wanted it to be something where people felt like they were on a great ride, right? There's a little bit, I admit, of the sort of, I'm an old school reading rainbow kind of a kid. <laughs> yeah. A little bit of that, like, let's fall into this book and mm-hmm. really travel the world. And I wanted people to really feel like, oh, that's what was happening where I come from. Whoever you are, right? If you're non-binary, if you're trans, if you are in a wheelchair, you're using a prosthetic, you know, I didn't want to leave out any of the history that brought us to the moments we're in right now or that predict where we're going. But the characters who are taking the journey in the book, it's very clear that inclusivity was important because there are five people of color. One has a prosthetic limb. Um, one wears hijab. I mean, you can see different mirrors <laughs> in this group that's taking the journey along with the artificial intelligence who's who's taking them through this history of women's fight for rights. Why was that so important? I have a diverse group of both of friends and of kids who are friends with my kids. And one of the things that you'll notice if you're reading a lot of children's books, and we need diverse books as sort of addressing this and some other things are addressing this. If you pick it up, I can find animals in a book faster than I can find a girl in a hijab, faster than I can find someone in a wheelchair or with a prosthetic limb. There's a a racist joke about, you know, the black bisexual army veteran or whatever. And that's who they think is going to get this scholarship money or who's going to go to this thing. And that person doesn't exist. Well, that person does exist. You just don't see her or them because they're not in your books and they're not in your media. They're next to you at the bus stop, but you don't know the person next to you at the bus stop story. Right. And so we tend to believe the world exists of what we see in the media that we consume. I don't know if everybody remembers that show, uh, Agent Carter. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So there was a big argument for both sets of the show that there wouldn't have been any brown people in New York to be in that show. And there wouldn't have been any brown people in California. Thus, there was a certain lack of diversity. And someone said, well, Jim Crow. And I started to realize 
what we think of as Jim Crow and what Jim Crow actually was are two very different things. What we think of as this history is informed by the movies made during Jim Crow and the TV shows where you never saw a black or brown face interacting with white people. The reality, though, which a little more difficult to access, because, again, the way we teach history is sort of boring in K-12, was all of these people were living together. They were riding the trains in New York. They were going places. They were working for the federal government. Sure, there were some weird things, like a cage built around a black worker so that he was technically not sharing the same space as white workers in the federal government under Wilson, things like that. But all of these people were part of this world. Right. Black people didn't stop existing after slavery ended and then magically reappear in time for Martin Luther King. You know, we didn't have Japanese. I want to call them concentration camps. And someone's camps. And, and there's someone's going to call them internment camps. But I'm going to be honest and looking at the economic impact after the fact. It was very much that the internment camps were a way to internally commit a minor form of economic genocide. Right. And not minor in the sense that it didn't impact their lives, but minor in the sense that we then swept that under the rug, right? And we become the heroes who stopped Hitler and the concentration camps. And we just sort of pretend that slavery and internment camps and, you know, boarding schools and all of these things weren't happening in the U.S. And my problem was that when then when we have these conversations about feminism or about history at all, we're not having the same conversation because the history you know dictates where you sit yourself. And if you are not learning a real history, a complex, complicated, messy history, and instead you're learning that streamlined set of facts like the Battle of Hastings and, well, Lincoln freed the slaves, it's not exactly what happened. You can go all the way through and feel like you're super educated. It's not that people didn't go to school or they weren't paying attention, but K-12 coursework doesn't cover most of this history. And what it does cover is tiny little snippets right? I wanted to put it all together in a way that was easy and accessible, even for people who will say that they don't like reading and they don't like history. Well, you also don't flinch away from some of that messiness in the book. If a woman ruler, you know, had some problematic (laughs) positions or wasn't necessarily promoting women's rights because she saw herself as being an exception to how women should be treated in society, you include that As well, as I was reading the book, it's not about really creating a canon of heroines. I don't think that we can ever look at anyone, but especially at history, and say that this person is a hero. We're all villains. We're all victors. We're all victims at various points throughout history, right? One of the things is that sometimes people engage in villainous conduct in order to achieve whatever the next step was. No one has ever won rights by asking for them politely, right? So then we have this narrative that is a little weird now where, oh, they marched and they held up signs and that was it. And then they got rights. And it's like, well, hold on. There were these riots. There were these bombings, you know, the Haymarket. Like you can't look at that labor history or that civil rights history and look at the Stonewall Rebellion and then say, oh, well, if you were nicer now. Those people were nice. Well, those people weren't nice. They were throwing bricks. They were blowing things up. They were fighting. They were in the street fighting. Yes, there was a history of nonviolent resistance, but that nonviolent resistance even is situated in a larger, messier framework. And how we describe nonviolent resistance after the fact is not how it is described in the moment. Because the same people who complain about marches from Ferguson or marches in Chicago after Laquan McDonald was shot, those people aren't doing it like these people. Well, 
those people did it and you set dogs on them and fire hoses. So I'm not sure what the difference is. Oh, you mean these people have cameras to show when you do this thing? Is that the difference? You're upset now? Well, if you go back and you look at the footage, it's there too. And I think it's also important to note, you know, especially when we're talking about women, we have a tendency to sort of make racism and bigotry sort of this province sometimes of men, specifically of white men. And it's not that they're not at fault, but they're not there alone, right? There's a reason when you look at those images of the school desegregation, you don't see a lot of men in those pictures yelling at children as they walk into schools. You see white women yelling. You see white women sending threats because they didn't want their kids in school with those children. That's sort of the narrative we have to get to, the messy. Women have won a lot, but women have done a lot. And it's never going to be this easy, clean, binary answer to any of this. This is Reset on WBEZ. I'm Jen White, and I'm talking to author Mickey Kendall, author of the new book, Amazons, Abolitionists, and Activists, A Graphic History of Women's Fight for Their Rights. It's on bookshelves now, and you can also find it online. So you're a historian. (laughs) There are so many women in this book, and we're talking about millennia of history. How did you do this? I mean, that's the overarching question. (laughs) So I did a very weird thing somewhere out there in a slack there is a bunch of references for the artist uh, Astor D'Amico who who drew the book and I basically pulled together the things that I knew from different times and different classes and then tried to shake it out to something like a through line part of the reason for the narrative structure and the and the students is to help me organize Mm -hmm. I didn't want it to be just this wall of information coming at you and you're like I'm overwhelmed and I can't do it And so one of the things was that it took almost two years of research and writing and rewriting and trying to organize. And I used a lot of art history as references because the visual is where people learn the most, right? You have people who will tell you, oh, I know that there were no merchants or there there were no black people in 15th century England. And it's like, well, here are Queen Elizabeth's proclamations about the rising number of relationships between black people and white people that were never really officially sent out and were written by a courtier that she didn't sign off on, but she did take notice of. Here's the Jewish families in Limehouse. Here are all of these things. And I know all of this because I have a strange brain, admittedly. (laughs) But also I've realized not everybody has insomnia and a habit of reading at 2 a.m. all of the history they can find and everyone falls down a wiki hole. But it should be accessible to people in an easy to read and peruse format and to give to kids so they have a grounding. Because instead of you coming into college and maybe you take the right history classes and maybe you get interested enough to follow this train, what if you had a place to start? What if you had a place to kind of figure out, I like A, B, C, D, and E, and I, I don't know if it ties to this, but I would like it to. I would like to know, for instance, that Martin Luther King and Anne Frank were born in the same year. Right? We don't think of them as being peers because different countries, different races, different genders. But he didn't appear full grown in his 30s. He was born the same time she was. She didn't get to live past her teens. He didn't get to see his 60s. They both have had a major impact. So th- these are things we could kind of, those threads should be pulling together. As the book progresses and this group of Student is essentially moving through history. These other conversations emerge among them. They're essentially confronting um, one another 
on different assumptions they have, on uh, different, I guess, expectations they project onto one another. Why was it important to insert those conversations as part of this larger historical context? Because I think we're always having those conversations. I think these things are happening in different groups at different times. And I know, you know, if you are someone who, why does she wear the hijab? Why do black girls do that thing with their hair? Whatever the thought is running through your head, you then project from there because of what you've been told it means, right? I wear my hair in very long locks. And there are people who might say, well, why do you do that and don't straighten your hair, for instance? Well, why do you expect me to straighten my hair? Well, you know, the hijab is oppressive. To who? Is she being forced to wear it? Does she choose to wear it? This is a more complicated and nuanced conversation than covering is bad, not covering is good, or vice versa. And we have to have the arguments in public in the same way that we have the history in public. You also reference different types of feminism in the book. And in the past, you've been critical of the feminist movement for being more beneficial for some um, over others. And it comes up in the book. One page, you uh, take aim at what you call corporate feminism, uh, which has to do with Facebook CEO Sheryl Sandberg, her book Lean In, which some years later, after the tragic loss of her husband, she backed away from that. But talk about that critique of feminism and, and where you hope to see the modern feminist movement go. Um, so I have another book coming out called Hood Feminism that sort of delves into a lot of these issues in February. And one of the things I want to see modern feminism think about is the women who don't have access, who don't have privilege, Lean In is a great theoretical primer for someone who's already at a point where they could become a CEO, where they could rise in their career. It doesn't do anything for the scores of women who could never even get a job based off arbitrary things like their hair or whether they wear a hijab or where they went to school, things like that. And one of the things I want modern feminism to really step back and sort of self-correct is the assumption that if some people have made it, then it's good for everyone. Feminism can't be trickle-down. You can't have trickle-down economics. You can't have trickle-down feminism. You can't have trickle-down equality. You have to have a plan where the people who are at the bottom rung have a way up, as well as a plan for the people who are maybe higher up to reach back, right? Each one teach one is an, an old saying, well, it's not enough just to teach someone. Sometimes you have to look at, okay, well, I was able to get from point A to point B because I had family resources, I had a little extra money, I was in the military, so I have this extra 10 points to get this job. But that person couldn't join the military. That person doesn't have family. What barriers are they facing, right? And it's great to talk about work and equal pay, but what about women and their children who are facing hunger and homelessness? What are we doing for them? If we are supposed to be a movement for all women, we have to think about how we can help all women. How do you think your book and a deeper understanding of the complexity of women's history can help push that conversation forward? I think that it moves the conversation because once we get past the original arguments, which we are having over and over again, well, no, this is a choice and I need to stop arguing with her about her choice and start talking about what she does need. I need to treat people as equals and with respect and, and ask. Nobody needs this white savior narrative. We need to be working together. I think it can sort of shift. Someone's going to call me a socialist and they're sort of right, but sort of wrong. We can sort of shift to a place where we say, okay, these are the rights that women are missing. These are the things that women need help getting. 
How can we help each other? How can we help the rest of our communities to progress? Because if my non-binary or trans friends or you know, anyone who is marginalized doesn't have access and I have the power to help them get access, am I gonna use that power? Am I gonna keep insisting that there are only so many slices of this pie or do I just make a bigger pie? That's author Mickey Kendall. Her new book, Amazons, Abolitionists and Activists, A Graphic History of Women's Fight for Their Rights, is on bookshelves now and you can find it online as well. Mickey Kendall, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been great being on. And that's a wrap for today's Reset. You can follow the show on Twitter. We're at WBEZ Reset. And I'm at Jay White Pub Radio. Thanks for making Reset a part of your day. I'm Jen White. Let's talk again soon. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.